This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. This is Philip Nice from thetrumpet.com. China rapidly becoming a nuclear superpower. Why you should care about the patent policies of European bureaucrats. Secrets about the 2020 election remain secret as Fox News fails to fight. America's culture war is not a side issue anymore. All this and more, the most important news of the week and our panel's take on Bible prophecy. Coming up next on Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. It's spring. It's green here at our studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, and I assume it is warming up in our studio off the North Atlantic, to which we are connected by the wonders of modern technology. Here in Edmond with yours truly are Jeremiah Jacques and Andrew Miller. Hello there. Hello. And there at our offices in England, the mother country, are an Englishman, Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Good afternoon. Hello. And the job of these four men is to monitor the four corners of the globe, which we designate as Anglo-America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Check through all the news over the past seven days from our last Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Sift through it. Filter out 99% of it. Compare it to what the Trumpet has stated about Bible prophecy. Yes, Bible prophecy. Prepare it in bite-sized pieces and serve it to you for your consideration and evaluation. Many of our listeners and many Trumpet Magazine readers are here in the United States, and this week we start with the United States. On the Trumpet Hour Wednesday show, I interviewed Andrew Miller, and Andrew, you gave our listeners the basics of how to watch American news. An update on the Anglo-America region was promised, so all of the news that has happened, all of the news that has been reported, what are the main developments I need to know about and the listener needs to know about? Well, three of the biggest stories that happened this week is the dollar's dominance as the world reserve currency is eroding 10 times faster than it has any other year in the past two decades. Uh, An IRS supervisor has actually now informed lawmakers that the Biden administration is improperly handling and covering up criminal investigations into President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, uh, and a shadowy group behind the U.S.'s unconstitutional censorship industrial complex uh, is being exposed. So you could have devoted the next few minutes to covering one of those topics, uh, the dollar or the the Biden regime, uh, but instead, you told me you want to focus on something else. What is that something else, and why is it more important? Well, uh, that's a good question. Now, the uh, I like I said, I could have talked about uh, the dollar's uh, eroding dominance, corruption in the IRS, uh, or even corruption in government censorship. But the one thing that all three of those stories have in common is that they're being uh, perpetrated by an illegitimate presidential administration that's hijacked the U.S. government. Uh, And so I wanted to talk about uh, a lawsuit that was supposed to to help expose that illegitimate illegitimate presidency, and unfortunately has not. You uh, may have heard that 
Fox News has settled its lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems and, and paid Dominion almost $800 million, uh, which is a shocking number because Dominion was only suing Fox for $1.6 billion. And so they gave them 50% of what they wanted without even going to court, uh, especially in the United States, even compared to other countries. Uh, defamation lawsuits are notoriously hard to win here. You pretty much have to, in a case like this, Dominion would have pretty much had to conclusively proven that Fox News not only spread false information about them, but knowingly spread false information uh, about them. And so uh, Fox News, I think they really had a really good chance of not having to pay anything if they would have uh, fought harder uh, and really would have been a huge missed opportunity because, um, well, the reason Fox was being sued in the first place is they had, uh, after the election, they had people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani uh, on air who were making claims that Dominion voting systems were used to steal the election from President Trump. And uh, Sidney Powell in particular was uh, very adamant for a long time that she needed to get the evidence she'd collected in court, uh, and yet the courts uh, refused, over 60 times the courts refused to look at the evidence. Uh, and so this was... <laughs> This was probably uh, the best chance America's had so far to actually get the courts to look at the evidence because since it wasn't Fox suing Dominion, it was Dominion suing Fox in a defamation lawsuit where they have to claim that Fox News knowingly spread misinformation. Uh, they were opening up uh, in the process of discovery uh, internal text and internal memos at both Fox News uh, and Dominion. And uh, you've probably heard quite a bit of news coverage as there's a couple texts from Tucker Carlson saying that he didn't necessarily believe the Sidney Powell version of how the election fraud happened. And so Dominion was going to try to double down and use that in their case to prove that Fox News knowingly spread misinformation. But on the other side... Uh, you had a number of internal texts from uh, Eric Coomer and high-level security people at Dominion uh, released just weeks before the election where they admitted that the, their product was, quote, riddled with bugs uh, and that it had been hacked before. And so uh, you're definitely looking on the Dominion side of things that their machines, this is not the most secure election in U.S. history, as, uh, as Chris Krebs famously said it was. And the fact that even the Dominion executives themselves had deep concerns uh, just two weeks before the election uh, that their products <laughs> uh, had a numerous backdoors that could be exploited to steal the election. And we would have found out uh, a lot more about that information uh, had that process of discovery continued and Fox News decided not to fold at the last minute. It really was the last minute when, when Fox decided it, it wasn't going to be in the fight. So instead of fighting what might have been, probably would have been a fairly easy fight, and truth coming out from both voting Dominion Systems and Fox News, I would actually like to know even more about what's going on behind the scenes in Fox News, whether it wants to uh, reveal that or not. But instead of, of fighting that, Fox pays Dominion Voting Systems, uh, you said uh, $800 million. 
Um, by my quick calculations there, Fox is paying Dominion 44 times its annual income, not its annual profit, its annual income. Um, this is a huge, huge payout. What, what, what does this say about Fox and, and really America in general at this point? You know, I think in American in general, it just, just shows a lot of the apathy and lack of fighting spirit because at this point, uh, none of the other news media outlets have been <laughs> sued for this type of thing because they didn't let Sidney Powell and other people on. And it definitely shows that like, if you're going to get involved in this kind of fight, it's either go big or go home. Uh, if you um, if you try to half-heartedly, I think our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Flurry, made that point on Trumpet Daily this week, that if you half-heartedly try to expose election fraud, uh, it can really boomerang on you. But uh, I think in particular for looking at what's going on behind the scenes at Fox. Once Rupert Murdoch was compelled to testify in a court of law, everyone knew on the inside this was going to be settled. Okay, He did not want to go in there. It was a personal thing. He runs that company. What he says goes. He told his lawyers, settle it, try to get the best deal you can get. And that's why it was settled. It had nothing to do with primetime talent. had nothing to do with vision of what the image of Fox News is. He didn't want to go, so they settled it. So you heard from uh, O'Reilly right there, who uh, used to be pretty prominent behind the scenes at Fox, just showing you how much power uh, Rupert Murdoch has over the Fox Corporation. I mean, he, he owns Fox uh, and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, so uh, a pretty powerful media magnate. And he's worth $18 billion according to what I see on Forbes. Right, so $18 billion, and this, O'Reilly's making the claim that like someone this... Uh, <laughs> Uh, this powerful is like he he's a never trumper so he doesn't actually want to expose the stolen election for one but like o'reilly said he also didn't want to have to go to court and it's like he said it was really when it came out that murdoch himself was going to have to testify in this trial that he told his lawyers that like just if you can settle for half of what dominion suing us for is like just pay it and move on he's like i won't have to bother with the court system uh and what o'reilly didn't say but probably even more true <laughs> uh the stolen election doesn't get revealed and the uh <laughs> at least in uh in murdoch's hopes and dreams uh the uh republicans will pick another candidate who's not donald trump so really quickly, what uh, what uh, Bible prophecy would you apply to this, and where can our uh, li- listeners go for a little more information? Yeah, we'll focus in on one we've covered quite a bit before in Second Kings 14, verse 26, that talks about the Lord saw the affliction, that it was bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no help for Israel. Uh, and then the next verse talks about God saving Israel by the hand of an end-time Jeroboam. But I, I do think it uh, is worth dwelling on just the bitterness of the affliction uh, and the fact that basically a, a group of uh, socialist radicals have hijacked the U.S. government, installed an illegitimate administration, uh, were uncovering evidence about how that happened, uh, but that evidence is not getting to the courts because there's really no one other than Donald Trump and those in his immediate inner circle. Uh, even trying to expose the election fraud, even the big conservative networks. I mean, Fox News is probably the only nominally conservative 
corporate media network. There's some smaller alternate media ones. Uh, but even the main conservative network is not working to expose this election fraud. And so uh, we'll put uh, the article Ready for War from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry in the show notes that goes through in some more detail about that particular verse and the, the bitter affliction affecting America. So that was Ready for War, an article on thetrumpet.com. Ready for War. Well, thank you, Mr. Miller, for that perspective on what is unfolding here in America. In England, Richard Palmer is monitoring everything from Portugal to Sweden, Iceland to Greece, Lithuania to Germany. Mr. Palmer, what is of note in Europe right now? Finland has been hosting its first military exercises since it joined NATO. We've had some German ships and Portuguese ships as this NATO agreement means more military involvement from Europe. In Finland, we've had more protests in France as the Supreme Court there has sided with French President Emmanuel Macron over those pension reforms. A lot of that unrest that we've talked about before continues. And a lot of news for about EU federalization this week. So European Union is stepping, there's some new laws regulating cryptocurrency. There's a new law regulating migrants and how to deal with migrants as a whole throughout the European Union. More federal agricultural rules as Poland and others wanted to unilaterally put limits on cheap grain that was flooding into their countries from Ukraine. Uh, and the EU is, is stepping to handle that at a federal level. So a lot to choose from, some of which is covered there on thetrumpet.com. Which of those items should we zone in on here for Week in Review? Well, I'd like to talk about an aspect of uh, the federalization that's come out this week. It's, I think, a, a, an incredibly symbolic step uh, that we've seen taken, where we're having now a European Union kind of centralized patent system. So, you know, okay, patents, they can kind of sound a little bit boring. Uh, but this is something that the EU has been trying to do for a long time and failed. And what has happened now is 17 EU countries have gotten together and they've, they're agreeing to a unified patent system. Rather than applying for 17 different patents, you can now go straight ahead and just get one patent that covers these 17 groups. And there's a, now there's a unified patent court to, current, to, to cover this situation. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, is just the effects now of having a single patent region that gets rid of a lot of the bureaucratic overhead now in doing business in Europe. Uh, a big part of the reason why a lot of development and innovation happens in the United States rather than the European Union is it is so much easier to do business in the United States. Uh, something like this gets rid of some of that. You also see in the United States places like California bringing in more and more regulation uh, and the kind of the net effect of both of these gets the playing field a little bit more level uh, and you could see this uh, helping the EU uh, kind of assert itself more as a, uh, a leader in innovation. But also, you know, this is 17 EU nations. This is not 27. This is an example of a smaller group of European nations coming together and getting something done that they have failed to do on the large scale. That's something that has been theoretically possible for a long time, but there haven't been many significant examples of that going ahead. But you know, now you have this, this smaller group that has done this, and 
And uh, I think you, this could lead to more smaller groups getting together and making these pretty significant, pretty substantial decisions. And the reason why we watch this is there are some, we've got some very specific prophecies. The Bible has very specific prophecies about what we're expecting in Europe. You know, based on these prophecies, right away in 1945, Herbert W. Armstrong said that he was watching for a European Union to emerge out of, of Europe. He even used the term European Union. He talked about how it would start out as an economic union, would then become a political and a military union. But he said it's going to be a country of 10 nations. This is because the Bible talks about it being a country made up of 10 kings, as Revelation 17 talks about. Right now, we have a country with 27. So what we're expecting is a smaller group of European nations to move forwards on much closer integration where they have failed to do so when it's 27 nations. What we saw with the patent court is that in microcosm. Yeah, it's not 10, it's 17, but they're starting to put this principle into action. And you can see how this can, I think we're gonna see this more and more now as a smaller group of nations says, well, okay, fine. We've wanted to do this for decades with 27, we failed. Let's get those that we can and let's move forwards on this. And so it's, it ties in with that specific fulfillment of, of prophecy. And if you want to know more about that prophecy, we have a trends article on our website that goes through exactly why Revelation 17 applies to Europe, why we're expecting it to be 10 nations or 10 groups of nations. Uh, it's called Why the Trumpet Watches Europe's Ongoing Unification Projects. And you can find that in the trends section that's at the top right-hand corner on the website. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. Europe's ongoing unification project. Indeed, thetrumpet.com has talked about Europe using its power to impose heavy, heavy regulation on its people and on businesses who want to buy and sell from its people uh, and using that as leverage against other countries. Uh, we've also talked about the European Union slimming down and talked about, of course, most importantly, it's centralizing its power. So thank you again for that, Mr. Palmer. All Jeremiah Jacques has to do is keep an eye on Asia. Has anything happened there, Mr. Jacques? Yes, uh, quite a lot this week. Chinese defense minister, um, he met with Vladimir Putin this week and praised Putin for, quote, promoting world peace. So that's a pretty uh, Orwellian choice of phrasing there, I think. It's a story you could file under not the bee. Then another big headline from this week is that China appears to be militarizing a new island in the Bay of Bengal, uh, an island that could help China control the Malacca Strait shipping lanes. So a lot to keep our eyes on there. And then another interesting development is that India is now believed to have officially surpassed China in terms of population to become the world's most populous country. So the elephant now outweighs the dragon. So what would you like our Trumpet Hour listeners to really focus in on out of Asia? Yeah, I think the biggest story is that China wants more nuclear weapons and it wants to develop them with great speed. Right now, the world has only two of what could be called nuclear superpowers. That's Russia with about 6,000 nuclear warheads and then the United States with about 5,400. Um, China presently only has maybe 400, so it's not really in the same league as Russia and the U.S. But Chinese leader Xi Jinping is dead set on changing that. He is determined to close the gap. So the news this week is that the Pentagon believes China is now on the fast track to becoming the world's third nuclear superpower. The latest report shows that the Chinese are building two new fast neutron nuclear breeder reactors. 
These are on Changbao Island, uh, just about 100 miles off the coast of the mainland. And these reactors together are believed to be capable of churning out enough material for about 80 to 100 nuclear warheads per year. So it looks like China could uh, easily be in the quadruple digits of warheads by 2030. And then intelligence suggests that they would just keep on forging ahead from there and eventually hit 1,500 nuclear weapons. So that, that would put China well in the range of a nuclear superpower. And I've got a quote here from a policy document from the Pentagon. It says, By the 2030s, the U.S. will, for the first time in its history, face two major nuclear powers as strategic competitors and potential adversaries. This will create new stresses on stability and new challenges for deterrence, assurance, arms control, and risk reduction. End quote. So, you know, even during the tensest times of the Cold War, America only faced one other nuclear superpower, the USSR. But here we are now on the cusp of facing both China and Russia. And this means the world is entering into the most challenging period in history for the global nuclear order. And that's not to mention the fact that Asia's two giants, China and Russia, are allies. So the the emerging nuclear weapons superpower is already allied with Russia, the largest by, by count. Uh, nuclear superpower and for a lifetime there's been kind of this this uh, nuclear standoff between the united states and russia can that uh, last for another lifetime maybe yeah it's hard to say i mean we're we're actually down in terms of numbers from uh the height of just sheer volume of nuclear weapons there have been efforts to denuclearize and to kind of scale back on the size of nuclear arsenals both russia and the u.s have made considerable reductions since the height of the cold war there in the 80s um but now you've got more nations entering the picture. We're up to nine nuclear powers now. So it's it's a more fraught situation. And of course, some of those arsenals are utterly insecure, uh, particularly in Pakistan and, and North Korea. But in the near term, this is uh, it's really all about China's designs on Taiwan. You know, conquering Taiwan is in many ways the next step in China's broader goal of of global hegemony, you know, as cliche and perhaps hyperbolic as it sounds, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party that he leads really would like to rule the world. The policy papers from the CCP and, and the foreign policy over the last decade make that inescapably clear. And and they believe that a nuclear arsenal is vital to that long-term goal. And in terms of Taiwan, they believe that if they have enough nuclear weapons, then once they invade Taiwan, it would deter the United States from coming to Taiwan's defense. Washington Post reporter Josh Rogan spoke about this earlier this week. They're building a thousand new nuclear weapons. Why are they doing that? Why are they building 400 missile silos in the middle of China and then a thousand nuclear warheads? There's only one reason. It's to threaten to attack us if we defend Taiwan. They're building a nuclear deterrent, uh, an economic resilience, and an invasion force. And all those things coalesce around 2027. So Rogan says the nuclear buildup and, and these other factors will coalesce in 2027. And he says that's when we should expect China to invade Taiwan. It's hard to know if he's right about his timetable there, but I think the emphasis on China's most immediate goal being Taiwan is exactly right. And that means that the world is moving into a more turbulent 
nuclear era. So that means the world is moving into a more turbulent nuclear era. You've got China expanding its its arsenal. Of course, this is happening at the same time that another nuclear power, Russia, is waging its war on Ukraine, which is getting more backing from another nuclear power, the U.S. Meanwhile, you've got those situations in North Korea and Pakistan and other nations. All of these developments show, I think, just how brittle the global order is and how quickly it could all be blown apart. And if you look at Bible prophecy, there are passages that talk about a major war that will soon break out. Matthew 24 says this future war will be so destructive that it will have the capacity to annihilate human life from Earth. So from that detail, we know that this is talking about a war that includes nuclear weapons. And when we see China expanding its nuclear arsenal, that shows us, I think, just how near this future war could be. Thank you, Mr. Jacques. You recommended to me China to become nuclear superpower. That's on thetrumpet.com right now. China to become nuclear superpower. And the booklet Nuclear Armageddon is, quote, at the door. Nuclear Armageddon is at the door. The latter title can be found at thetrumpet.com slash literature. Trumpet Hour takes a special interest in the Middle East, and Mihailo Zekic is your Middle East man. Mihailo, Middle East update. Go. So there's been a lot of news going on in about Israel this past week. On Wednesday, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen hinted that an unnamed Arab state is set to recognize Israel sometime this year. We'll keep an eye on that. And also this week, former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett went to Washington, D.C. to meet with some congressional representatives and some other uh, representatives of the government that he won't say who. Meanwhile, current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has yet to go and meet President Biden in a very obvious diplomatic snub. Um, In the rest of the region, Egypt is seeing more economic woes. We've talked about that in this program before. They're seeing 62% inflation regarding food, the highest rate in decades, and which means even in Ramadan, the Muslim holy month where Uh, people fast during the day and eat at night a lot of families are struggling to even put together one meal for the evening so there's some shaky things going on there and that's a particularly bold snub snub meaning insult like just outright insult uh with uh the the biden regime's treatment of the the sitting prime minister of israel i'd like to hear more about that hopefully we'll cover that more on the trumpet.com but You've got something else for the big news of the week out of the Middle East. Might it have anything to do with Saudi Arabia? You guessed it. Um, (laughs) This is uh, obviously a story we've been following quite a bit, but it just keeps getting juicier and juicier with each week, it seems like. We talked on this program before about the Saudis making deals with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Um, On Monday, there were rumors circulating that uh, the Saudi Arabian government accepted a delegation from Hamas the uh, infamous terror group that runs the Gaza Strip as a de facto state. and Which is interesting for a number of reasons. For one thing, the Saudis are keeping this relatively quiet. Uh, they're not making any official statement, but there was um, some of the delegates uh, that went. There's a video of them circulating on social media of them going to pilgrimage to Mecca. So I think that's proof enough of what's going on. But also... Hamas and Saudi Arabia don't get along that well. Uh, Saudi Arabia tried to organize a Palestinian uh, unity government between Hamas and their arch-rival Fatah in 2007. Hamas responded by staging a coup in the Gaza Strip taking over. The Saudis blamed them for derailing it, and since then, 
Hamas members have been arrested and allegedly tortured in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been publicly backing Fatah. But looks like there's going to be a reset with that, according to the unconfirmed uh, reports uh, from places like state Turkish media. The Palestinians went to Saudi Arabia to discuss the ongoing situation and to talk about relations with uh, between them and the Saudis. So Saudi Arabia, a major power in the region. This obviously, with the uh, Palestinians, obviously concerns the state of Israel. Uh, what's their take on that? Maybe to tell them that uh, they're going to have to prepare themselves, maybe to try to tell them to stop uh, the kind of terrorism that they foment. Uh, again, I don't think uh, the Saudi leadership has any illusions about the nature of its friends and the natures of its adversaries and also the nature of those who foment violence deliberately. Well, what you just heard there is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on an interview he had with CNBC that was released this week. He, as you could hear, doesn't seem that uh, unnerved, which, considering Hamas is one of the major threats to Israeli security, says something. A little bit of other backstory, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who controls the West Bank, who belongs to Fatah, he visited Saudi Arabia on Tuesday, the day after Hamas was supposed to be there. That was publicized by the Saudi government, and according to the Palestinian media, he's going there for similar reasons. So, uh, according to Benjamin Netanyahu, according to the Israeli government establishment at this point, they think that the Saudis might be actually trying to talk to the Palestinians to get them to ready for, say, a more Saudi engagement with Israel, more Saudi outreaches to Israel, which, I mean, on the one hand, is not really what the Palestinians want. But also, at the same time, it shows that Israel sees what Saudi Arabia is doing with these groups as a good thing as something for Israel to be excited about, which one way or another would mean a lessening of the security situation for Israel and perhaps even breaking away or causing Hamas and some of these other groups to break away from Iran and turn towards governments that Israel would be would consider more palatable. So a lot going on there. What do you expect to come out of this and why do you expect it? Well, a uh, prophecy we go to often on this show is in Psalm 83. It talks about an end-time alliance of different Middle Eastern peoples along with Germany, mentioned as their ancestral name, Asher. We've also gone to another prophecy in Daniel 11, which talks about Germany and their allies going to conflict with Iran and uh, under the name the King of the North and the King of the South. And in that Psalm 83 alliance, it talks about the Philistines, the ancestors of the modern people in places like Gaza. Gaza used to be a Philistine city anciently. It's mentioned in the Bible as being on Germany's side and the side of all these other moderate, so-called moderate Arab countries rather than Iran. Right now, Hamas is a proxy of Iran. If anything, it's probably one of their most valuable proxies. They skirmish with Israel all the time. They're committed to Israel's destruction. Uh, they don't waver with Iran, say some of these other groups. But we expect that to change at some point. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Flurry, in his King of the South booklet, which we reference often on this show, specifically said that we could see some, in that book, some significant power shifts in Gaza for that alignment from Iran to the German camp, 
to the moderate Arab camp to take place sometime soon. What's crucial for the purposes of this story is that Saudi Arabia is also mentioned in the Psalm 83 alliance under the name the Ishmaelites, their ancestral peoples. So, again, it's too early to tell exactly how the pieces will fall into place. It's the Middle East. Unexpected things happen all the time. But this could be a way, uh, this Saudi uh, rapprochement could be a way we see the Gazans uh, detach from the Iranian camp and move towards the moderate camp and towards the, uh, eventually towards Germany and Europe. So if our listener is thinking, okay, what is going on with Saudi Arabia and they want to look into it more, where do you point them? Well, we have an article in our latest trumpet print edition, uh, Did America Just Lose Saudi Arabia? It doesn't talk about the Palestinians per se, but it does talk, uh, for the longest time, Saudi Arabia has been a very uh, close ally of America, and we're seeing a general trend of them splitting from the United States, splitting from the West in a number of places. This Palestinian deal could factor into that, so if the reader would like some background, I recommend that article. So a lot afoot in the Middle East, King of the South, the King of the South at the Trumpet.com you mentioned, as well as Did America Just Lose Saudi Arabia, which should be updated almost every week, it seems, as you kind of implied, as Saudi Arabia disassociates itself more and more uh, from the United States. Thank you for that update, Mr. Zekic. You're listening to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. I'm Philip Nice with Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And we've been talking about Fox News giving up, Europe federalizing, China's nuclear arsenal, and Saudi Arabia's affections. Coming up, Lithuanian vigilantes, Russian energy exports, Sudanese assassins, and culture war in Disney World. Join us when we return for the second half of Trumpet Hour. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Mr. Palmer, you gave us a microcosm of European centralization and unification in the first half. Uh, besides that, what else would you have our listeners know this week? So some people may know I have a bit of a pet peeve about European leaders criticizing Donald Trump and American leaders for their, the treatment of the Mexican border. You know, you've got this absolutely ridiculous situation where... Europe will literally pay wanted war criminals to lock migrants in concentration camps while lecturing Donald Trump on how building a border wall is fundamentally immoral. Um, And somehow they get away with this. And we've got another story uh, that kind of illustrates this same kind of um, contradiction this week, Uh, this time from Lithuania. You know, Lithuania is... Not a country we tend to regard as as being particularly right wing. They're Scandinavian and herbivoracious generally, um, 
and uh, you know, if Texas passed a law allowing volunteers from anywhere in the country to show up at the border and use violence against people coming in from Mexico, and at the same time outlawed journalists and uh, NGOs from coming to the border to watch what they were doing, there would be international outcry. But this is what Lithuania did this week, where there's this, there's this new law where volunteers can basically show up from anywhere in Europe and uh, um, come along and patrol Lithuania's borders keep, and keep migrants out. And if they do it particularly well, uh, you know, they are allowed to use coercion and, and uh, they can be nominated for awards if they do a good job of keeping these migrants out. There's also parts of the bill that allow patrol guards to force people back into Belarus and to, uh, you know, this is something that is generally regarded as, as, as illegal within the European Union. It's called pushbacks, where instead of allowing people in, you, you push them back to the country where they're coming from. And again, to be clear, I don't really have a problem with any of this. If you're going to, if, if there are volunteers that want to keep your border safe, you as a country have the right to keep your border safe. And if you want to use those volunteers to do so, fine, you're more power to you. Uh, but it's just, it's the hypocrisy and it's the fact that the EU sits down and lectures America for doing things that are much tamer than a whole lot of the things that Europe is doing uh, that ends up kind of getting my goat. All is not as it seems, apparently. Apparently, we cannot trust the rhetoric of politicians. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Palmer? Breaking news. Yes, you heard it here <laughs> first. Uh, but it is indicative of this wider trend. You know, we At the Trumpet, we're forecasting this big shift for Europe. That uh, you know, Europe really does, it, it does an excellent job of putting out this image of you know, rules-based international order, and we're not aggressive, um, the language, the rhetoric is very much well. we don't even act in our own interest and we just follow international rules and norms and if you disagree with us, you're kind of a bad person. Um, you know, everybody, all nations justify themselves, but I think the European Union is particularly good at it. Uh, and it's stories like this that reveal the truth and that you know, show you that the changes that you know, this different organization or this European Union that has a very different characteristic that's talked about in the book of Revelation. You know, Revelation 13, people look at this European power that's coming and they're saying, well, you know, who can make war with the beast? Who is like this? Who can fight them? You know, they're aggressive, they're assertive. You know, there are big changes coming, but stories like this, I think, show you the potential for these kind of changes. They give you a glimpse at the at the character that we're going to see emerging. You know, it, it has been a migration crisis that has led to this kind of change in Europe. As you see more of these crises, we can expect more of these changes. And we talk about this, we have another trends article, uh, you know, why the trumpet watches Europe's push towards a unified military. It's not quite the same subject, but it talks about this, you know, th this kind of personality change that we're going to see coming to Europe very soon. From sophisticated, metrosexual, soft power, superpower, uh, Europe will go to who can make war with the beast. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Jeremiah Jacques, you told us that China, which is rapidly becoming the world's most dominant economy, is rapidly becoming the world's third nuclear superpower. What would you say is the second most important news in Asia this week? 
It is that Russian exports of crude oil are now above the levels where they stood before Russia expanded its conflict with Ukraine into a full-scale war. So Russia's back to those pre-war levels of oil sales and even above them. And there are two big reasons why. They are China and India. China and India together are now buying about 90% of Russia's oil exports. That's according to Kepler's latest data. And it shows that India and China are each buying about 1.5 million barrels per day. That means India is now buying 25% of all its oil imports from Russia, whereas before the war, it was only buying about 1% from Russia. And then China is now buying 36% of its oil imports from Russia, up from about 25% before the war. So these are some uh, just major increases from both China and India, and it's enough to offset the reduction of exports to European countries. Europe used to buy about two-thirds of Russia's crude before the war. So this all shows that, you know, despite the Western attempts to punish Russia by sanctioning it, Russia is still having no trouble selling its oil. Its exports are actually above the levels they used to be. Uh, and China and India, it, it's because they are more than making up for the West, and it's helping Russia's war machine to just keep on killing. So Russia obviously heavily, heavily dependent on its energy exports. Uh, does this mean that the Russian economy is is back to where it was before the war? Well, that's uh, that's an important part of this story. The, the West did not want to remove Russian oil from the global market because, you know, it was clear that that would cause soaring oil prices for everyone, including the Western public. So instead, the West imposed price caps on Russian oil. This was basically a limit to how much the Russians are allowed to sell for. And this was designed to keep the global market from having just terrible shortages, but to simultaneously push Russia's revenue down. So it's a bit of a balancing act that has happened there, but it means Russia can only sell for $60 per barrel. And that means even though Russia is selling more oil, its revenue is down about 43% compared to last year. So that's obviously not ideal for the Russians. They would prefer to be able to sell at the full market price, but it's still enough to keep on financing the war on Ukraine. And it's all thanks to China and India throwing these lifelines to Russia. And you see a disconnect in the oil uh, relationship between Russia and Europe and somewhat new connections or expanded connections with other nations in Asia. That's right. Yes. So these these lifelines to Russia from China and India, really, it's something that um, we should have expected from Bible prophecy. And at the trumpet, we have been expecting this kind of Asian, you know, collusion and cooperation. Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article in our May-June 2022 issue. It's called, Asia Still Stands with Putin. I'll just read one part of that. It says, Western nations see the war as a clear example of Putin's deadly despotism. But what about the East? Two of the largest, most populous, most powerful nations in the world are supporting Putin. This is a stunning fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. And then from there, Mr. Flurry discusses some of the specific prophecies he's talking about. One of them is in Ezekiel 38, which says a Russian individual will soon lead a massive army into World War III. And then uh, a passage in Revelation says this Asian force will have an army of 200 million soldiers. So that's, of course, far more than Russia could ever field on its own. Even if you threw in every single Russian grandmother and toddler, you know, you, you still couldn't get anywhere near 
that number. But once you factor in China's 1.4 billion people and India's 1.4 billion, it's not at all unrealistic to get to that number of soldiers. And, and the passage in Ezekiel even gives some ancient names indicating China and India as well, just showing that they'll be part of that Russian-led force. So I think to see China and India right now increasing their business with Russia and, and supporting Putin, it really is setting the stage for these Asian giants to all be grouped together in this alliance led by Vladimir Putin. Thank you, Jeremiah Jacques, for updating us there on China and Russia. Quickly over now to Mihailo Zekic for another quick update on the Middle East. Yeah, so this will probably be the Middle Eastern story most of our listeners would be aware from just watching the nightly news. On Saturday, uh, a bit of a civil war started in the North African country of Sudan. This pits the, the Sudanese military, which is currently running the country in a military government, against the Rapid Supply Forces, which is a paramilitary, semi-legitimate group. Uh, it, spa- it was spawned originally from Arab militias, former dictator Omar Bashir, uh, used in the infamous Darfur genocide, which of course killed some people estimate hundreds of thousands. Um, well, Bashir was ousted in 2019. These two groups tried to get together and run a government, and it's fallen afoul. We don't know the immediate causes of what happened. Um, there's different accounts on who controls the presidential palace, who controls the airport. Latest estimates suggest over 400 people have died in the fighting and over 3,000 injured. Um, the, I mean, in one sense, it's a bit of a, a story that's been going on for decades now, to paraphrase something Mr. Palmer said way back when, the, the Pope's Catholic, the French are protesting, the Sudan's at war. But um, it, it, this has a potential to draw in a lot of outside actors as well. Egypt, Sudan's neighbor to the north, is really wary of what's going on and has started backing and supporting the Sudanese military. Meanwhile, Khalifa Haftar, who's a Libyan warlord that controls part of Libya, has been supporting the uh, Rapid Supply Forces, or the RSF, as uh, have um, allegedly the Wagner Group, which is a shadowy Russian uh, mercenary company that's most likely a front for Putin to get into wars without directly bringing Russia into it. The big one we want to watch, though, is Europe. Now, Europe is not sending in squadrons of of, uh, bombers or paratroopers into situation just yet but there have been some pretty interesting attacks against Europeans, specifically European diplomats. Um, On Sunday, Wim Franson uh, who's uh, Belgian and who heads the European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operation, or ECHO in Sudan, he was declared missing on Sunday and found on Tuesday by his colleagues shot with what they say is serious but not life-threatening injuries. Last we heard, he's still okay. Um, Then on Monday, the actual uh, ambassador for the European Union, Aidan O'Hara from Ireland, was assaulted in his home with a break-in. Now from last I've checked, it looks like it's not like a targeted political attack. It was just a bunch of chaotic thugs looking for uh, something to loot. Um, And that's not the only one, even the German military They tried to do an evacuation of their citizens in Sudan, and they actually had to call the evacuation off uh, on Wednesday because Khartoum is just such a uh, a battle zone right now. They don't know what's going to happen if they go in there. Now, having your own ambassador attacked, uh, having a staff member of yours shot, that's the kind of things that, in in democracies at least, can topple governments. 
or can change election cycles. Technically speaking, attacking an ambassador is a declaration of war. You, that's not the kind of thing countries treat lightly. Um, now, again, Sudan's had a lot of unrest for a long time, and it will have unrest in the future. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. Ceasefire talks have already failed, and so the West is really wary of getting involved, especially when you look at the involvement of, say, Afghanistan and Iraq and some of these other countries that they've tried to get involved in. But a prophecy, again, that we go to often, I referenced it earlier, Daniel, Daniel 11, verse 40, talks about Europe and radical Islam clashing, and it specifically says that radical Islam will push against Europe. Um, at this point, none of the groups, at least openly, are waving the black flag of jihad. It's not necessarily a jihadist war, but we're still seeing unrest in Muslim countries push at Europe, and eventually this push is going to get so big, we can expect a very, very serious counter-attack uh, from Europe. You can look at is North Africa Europe's next crisis on thetrumpet.com? Is North Africa Europe's next crisis? Thank you, Mihailo Zekic. We don't cover every war, every conflict, every attack on a diplomat, not because some people matter more than others, but because our writers here, our commentators, uh, are filtering down to what has been covered in the trumpet as connected to Bible prophecy. So the situation in Sudan uh, connects to that. And the situation in Disney World connects to that, Andrew Miller. Yeah, the feud between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney just keeps escalating and escalating. And we just believe that parents should be able to send their kid to school, have them watch cartoons, just be kids without having some agenda shoved down their throats all the time. So gender ideology has no place in our K through 12 school system. And if Disney objects to that, well, so be it. We're going to do what's right. I guess to, to recap, you almost have to start at the beginning and come up to this week. It's been over a year ago that uh, Ron DeSantis and the Florida state legislature uh, together passed and signed a bill that basically bans um, public schools from teaching kindergartners through third graders about sexual orientation or gender identity. And so many Florida parents were happy that their, their nine-year-old didn't have to learn about gender identity uh, in a public school setting. Uh, but Disney was outraged, condemned the bill, uh, and promised to hit back by increasing the number of homosexual and transgender characters in their children's programming. Uh, DeSantis, not to be deferred, tried to punish Disney by stripping it of its self-governing status. Uh, apparently, in addition to being a corporation, Disney's also the local government in the Reed County Improvement District. Uh, DeSantis was successful at that, but Disney's lawyers did some pretty fancy legal maneuvering at the last minute and basically delegated most of the responsibilities of the local Reed County government to the Disney Corporation before the new board took over. Uh, and then just to up the ante, uh, decided to do their dis their first Disney-sponsored uh, Pride Night, uh, just really promoting both homosexuality and transgenderism uh, at the Disney Park in Florida. Uh, DeSantis' latest move has been to expand his original bill to include all um, 
a ban on teaching about gender identity or sexual orientation from all grades from pre-K through high school graduation, 12th grade. Uh, he successfully got that done and is looking at ways to uh, to try to get some of the authority back from Disney into the Reed County District. Uh, but this is just one of these culture war stories that looks like it's just going to keep escalating and escalating. And where do you see it escalating to? Yeah, that is actually a really good uh, question. And I've, I've kind of been dis- disappointed with uh, some of the Republican candidates who are very strong in other ways. Uh, Donald Trump kind of made fun of DeSantis for uh, getting owned by Disney uh, and then criticized him for doing things that are going to um, deter investment from Florida. So he's taking this more from an economic angle. Um, And then uh, some of the other Republicans, Chris Christie and uh, the New Hampshire governor, also said that they thought DeSantis's obsession with fighting with Disney is uh, convoluting what the overall Republican message should be. Uh, although on this particular angle, I do think DeSantis understands that the the culture war is the most important war that America can win. Uh, there's actually a really good quote I've used before. It's from Mark Stein, and he actually wrote this uh, nine years ago, where he said, you can't have a conservative government and a liberal culture Liberals expend tremendous effort changing the culture. Conservatives spend tremendous effort changing elected officials every other November and then are surprised when it doesn't actually make much difference. Culture trumps politics, which is why once the question has been settled culturally, conservatives are reduced to playing catch-up, twisting themselves into pretzels to explain why gay marriage is really conservative after all or why 30 million unskilled immigrants with a majority of births out of wedlock are natural allies of the Republican Party. And this was written nine years ago, back when homosexual marriage was the front lines of the culture war. And now with this new DeSantis story, you see what Stein said has actually come to pass and the fact that you're getting a lot of conservatives saying that, like, well, DeSantis shouldn't be so obsessed with this or or others saying that, like, we actually need Republicans and Christians and homosexuals to work together against um, transgender surgeries for children. So you're your front line has shifted to where now you're like, you're, it's no longer against homosexual marriage. It's against we need to we'll be working with the homosexual marriage advocates in order to stop genital, um, genital mutilation of prepubescent boys and girls. That's where we are at in the culture war in America. And that is the most important war in many ways that you could focus on well thank you for updating us on that andrew miller and thank you richard palmer jeremiah Jacques, and mihailo zekic thanks to nick Irwin and jesse hester for engineering and production and thank you most of all for listening for this hour with us uh, email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com we have been hearing from you this week and we really do appreciate it genuinely thank you i'm philip nice that is your weekend review for today's trumpet hour and thank you for joining us